I've got two different types of Bible studies up here. One for the Old Testament and the Gospels. It's a step-by-step. Step. And another one for the epistles. You know what that is, right? The wives of the apostles. And uh, <clears throat> that'll get back there. <clears throat> it's, an, it's an oldie but a goodie. <clears throat> uh, there's another study here uh, for the epistles uh, that if you're interested in. And then a handout on three different prayer methods if you're interested uh, in that. Now, also, I might add, and several of you have been asked to join uh, the Real Life uh, Facebook page, and, and uh, that's great. These uh, documents are also on the Real Life Facebook page where you can go and download them and have them available to you. I, wanna, I don't want to just talk about practices. I don't want to just discuss that we ought and should, and it'd be good to, uh, but to give you some things in your hands that can help you uh, to practice some of the things that we're going to talk about someday. And uh, you <clears throat> probably idea. Now, what, what we've been looking at is these, the matter of priorities and practices, th this first thing. And I'd say to you before, you know, that, that, uh, that, that there is uh, some value in being able to set priorities. I've told a couple of stories about Charles Schwab and John Rockefeller, about other things. But it seems to me, again, how that priorities help us to choose carefully. Help us to choose carefully uh, the opportunities and the situations uh, that we find our lives. You know, some of us have trouble saying this word, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's hard for some of us. I mean, in theory we can, uh, but sometimes uh, our priorities are such that we ought to say, even though it might disappoint some people, and we like to please people I know, we ought to be able to say no to things. In addition, though, uh, our priorities, hopefully, uh, help us to know what to say yes to, right? They help us to know what to say yes to. And so living a life of priorities and practices uh, seems to me to be something we can talk about and discuss. It helps us to focus our energy. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm constantly pulled in a lot of directions, and I need to focus my energy on some things that have the highest, if you will, uh, outcome on that. Uh, when I was uh, working at UPS a long, long time ago, we used to have... Uh, I loaded three uh, trucks, or we call them package cars, and uh, I loaded them and uh, was uh, pretty obnoxious at 3 o'clock in the morning singing every Hank Williams song I could remember. <laughs> at 3 o'clock in the morning, when you're loading packages, you got to do something else. Yeah. <clears throat> but at that uh, job that I had, when, uh, they, when I started it, uh, they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of packages going to different places. And I thought, how am I? And, I, and you have to memorize the addresses. And then you have to memorize in which truck these packages go, what shelf, up, top, bottom, back, all over the place. A lot of memorization. Once I found that out, I wanted to go back to the unload where all you did is just throw stuff out. I was, I was good at that. Just throw it out. Some of y'all have gotten packages from me. <clears throat> we, we would every once in a while say, hmm, that sounded like a lamp. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I, I'm no longer a, an official uh, uh, member of United Parcel. I'm sure they do much better now. Um, but what's frightened me about it was I had three package cars with all these shelves and all these locations and then all these addresses to memorize in 30 days. And my boss came to me one day with a chart. And, and I said, what is that? And it's based on the Pareto principle. You've probably heard of this, that in any business, 20% of the people do 80% of the production. It's called the Pareto Principle. They said, this is the Pareto Principle that Cliff, 80% of your boxes will come from 20% of the addresses. I drew a big relief at that point. I thought, you mean I've only, I really need to memorize 20% of these addresses? He said, yeah, if you'll memorize the 20%, 
you'll be able to handle over 80% of the uh, volume that comes uh, there. I'm on a training film, I'm sure, though I did something. If you want to talk to me about it, I'll tell you later. <laughs> I, I know I'm on a training film, and uh, in a bad way. In a, <clears throat> uh, so priorities, they, at United Parcel Service, they said, you, you know, you, you've got all these addresses. You'll go crazy if you try to memorize all of them. Just work on those 20% that 80% of your volume will come from. Well, that's priorities, isn't it? That, that sometimes that's what we have to, we have to focus carefully. We have to choose carefully and say, what is it I need to do that's going to produce the greatest result or greatest impact for my life in 2016? So we, t we started this last week and we'll continue that one of the first priorities as we discussed was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to make a statement here and I've made a couple of statements and the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across this community church, its elders, or leadership. And I mean that. <laughs> last week I said that the priority of the Holy Spirit is based on my reading of Scripture from a, what I call a synoptic view. See the whole thing in, in place. That the cross is not the goal of God's activity. Pentecost is. After Jesus risen from the dead, he says, instead of what I would say, sick him, he says, wait. It's not over. Now, that's a fundamental truth, I think, the scripture is attempting to teach us. That the goal of God's activity is not the cross, but it is, in fact, Pentecost where Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and if you will, in the Old Testament imagery, that God re-inhabits the temple. And the temple, we understand, is to be the bodies of human beings who are followers of Jesus. Now, that may be a little bit of a, a wild thought. I got another one, even better. Got another one better. That, that as I'm reading Scripture, and I think this, why this is such a priority, is because we've not really dialed into that. That really that we need to be speaking about and discussing and reading and studying and understanding. What is it? Because in Jewish teaching, I will tell you this. That the age of the Messiah was fundamentally understood as the age of the Spirit. All Jewish rabbis understood that when the Messiah comes, what will typify and characterize his time will be the time of the Spirit. So, so that's one of the reasons why I think it, it, it's a matter of priority for us to consider the second, here's another one. I've met it for years. I've thought about this. Not, I mean, I've said it before, but I've thought about this, and I and I want to just roll this one out for you. I think the Holy Spirit's a priority because, in my reading and understanding, I don't think that Jesus ever fundamentally changed the disciples. I don't think he ever did. If you read the Gospels and you see the ministry of Jesus, I would think that probably by the last night when I'm about to leave, I'm ready to pull the plug on this plan. <laughs> With these guys? Now, now, just think about this for a second. Jesus, I know, I'm a Trinitarian person. I believe they're all working together, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. But Jesus never fundamentally changed them. They were attached to him. They loved him to some degree, but he never changed their character. I'll give you some verses. We'll go look at this. Uh, one of them is uh, we see in the Gospels that these guys are incredibly vindictive. Go read uh, Luke 9, 50, uh, 53 to 55, 
where they come to Jesus and say, hey, we saw somebody over here casting out demons in your name. They're not part of us. Shall we call fire down upon them? Jesus said, he is for us, is not against us, and you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. Go read that. Interesting. You don't know what kind of spirit you are of when Jesus makes that. It's always been fascinating. Go, go read that. What, what's fascinating about these guys is earlier in that chapter, a man brings a son to him who's demon-possessed and having trouble, and they can't cast him out. They don't have the faith to do that. A couple of verses later, they got the faith to call fire down from heaven. <laughs> How messed up is that? We don't have the faith to help somebody, but we got the faith to incinerate somebody. We got the faith to, to, to call down fire because you're not part of our group. Becky and I were talking about this other day, and, and she says, isn't it interesting how, that, how, how cliquish they were, that you're not part of our group. You're not hanging with us. So kind of vindictive. Uh, second of all, uh, it's not hard to realize this is more than one. They, they are constantly seeking position. Now, in Matthew 20, 2024, Matthew 20, 20, uh, mother of James and John come up and uh, ask Jesus, you know, when you come into your kingdom, would you let my boys sit on the right and the left? As you read through the passage, you realize those boys put her up to that because the other 10 were mad at James and John. Seeking position. Hey, you know what? This thing may be coming to some kind of closure here. Third, pretty unreliable under pressure. Matthew four, or sorry, Mark fourteen thirty two. Pretty unreliable. Fourth, incapable of understanding Jesus's plan. Incapable of it. Matthew sixteen twenty one twenty three, when Jesus says, "You know, the Son of Man's going to be turned over," and and like that, and then Peter you know, realizing he's the spokesman, says, I probably should say something like, uh, Lord, you're never going to do that. <laughs> and Jesus says, Satan, get behind me, for you have your mind on the things of men. They don't understand this plan. So I, these are a few pieces of, you, you could look again, but I want to suggest to you that Jesus uh, never fundamentally changed these men. Now that's staggering, isn't it? That's staggering. We know the work of Jesus. We know his work in, in, in ministry and incarnation. We know it in terms of his penal substitutionary atonement on the cross. We got that. We're talking about, though, changing the lives of people, not simply in some judicial way where sins are forgiven, where the debt is paid, but the character and life is changed. But now, in, in, in honesty... Let, let, me, let me suggest something else here. Not that I wouldn't be honest. I know. Leave them alone. Okay. <clears throat> Too many voices. Too many. <clears throat> I'll be careful here. When you read the New Testament, I think one of the reasons we struggle with the Holy Spirit too is because we, we get on one side of the ditch or the other. You know, well, you know, we got the Holy Spirit. We're saved. Let's just go on. Don't quit worrying about it. The other side is, you know, the idea that because we're living in the spirit, you know, we, we're like four feet off the ground. It's always been fascinating to me that even after Pentecost, after Pentecost, there's still some struggles with these guys. You, you, you ought to read in Acts 10 sometimes that Peter is on the roof of his house there hanging out. 
and he has a vision, which would typically be understood uh, as coming from God. Uh, Chris has had a couple because he's over-medicated, but you know, <laughs> we know it causes that. He, he, the, the scripture says there, he is uh, thalmazo, the idea of he's, he's amazed because of this, this vision. And it shows this blanket, you remember it? All these animals and says, take and eat. And Peter said, never. I've never eaten that stuff. I will not eat that. And the voice comes back and says, don't call unclean what I'm calling clean. See, there's still some bias in him. When, when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and all these, there's still human beings and still working through some issues here, right? So there's some bias. So, you can, so Peter can have a vision that he understands from God and he starts talking back. Boy, this guy, you know, when he rebukes Jesus and then he's talking back to God, I'd like to sit down with him. <laughs> so, so there's still some, another example. I just want to be honest. I'm concerned I don't want to get in this ditch or in this one. I don't get over here where living in the Holy Spirit means you're just perfect and, you know, all your kids are born with straight teeth and everything's wonderful. <laughs> or over here, we don't think about it. You know, it's all part of the package deal. And I bought the package deal, kind of like going on a cruise. You know, I got it all. <clears throat> there is some racial bias in Peter. In Galatians chapter 2, <clears throat> go back and read it later. This is after Pentecost. Paul <clears throat> confronts him to his face. They would have been a lovely group to be with, I'm sure. <clears throat> because Peter, <clears throat> when the Jews were in town, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And when the Jews left town, he would eat with them. And Paul confronts him to his face and says, what you are doing is not consistent with the gospel. And he says, and you are, and he uses a Greek word, anathema, damned. What you're doing is damned. That's after Pentecost. He's still got some biases. Legalism. I, I, I'm not suggesting that this matter of the Holy Spirit is going to make us all just perfect people and we're not going to have to grow. You know, all of us have to grow. Some of you more than others. <laughs> I have a list. <clears throat> if you want to know who's on the list. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? This is where we get into trouble. We start reading it, don't read it all. Don't look at it all to say, okay, here's a guy filled with the Spirit, preached on Pentecost, incredible. He's still got some bias in terms of, of legalism with dietary matters. He's still got some bias racially. He prefers the Jews over the Gentiles. Because when, Gen when the Jews leave town, he'll go back and eat with the Gentiles. At times our failure, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, to discuss this matter of the Holy Spirit uh, is because... It is not easy. I don't have a formula for you. I love people that try to get a formula. Uh, <clears throat> the book of Acts. You know, we're not getting to be today. <laughs> the, the book of Acts. <laughs> this happens. The book of Acts. If you want to get in this formulaic thing... Give me four steps to being spirit-filled. Give me three steps to Christian maturity. Give me nine steps to raising great kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's interesting about the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches that great sermon and the audience gives the invitation. How about that? 
Hey, what do we do to be saved? He says, repent, believe and be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. There it is, guys. There's the formula. Repent, believe, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. I got it. I, I can write a book. I can make a pamphlet out of that. I can do a recording and give everybody the confidence and comfort that if you'll do that, this is what will happen. Except when you get to Acts 10. And then when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, who's first of all a Gentile and a Roman soldier, a head of a cohort, Peter walks in after the vision on the roof and you know all that kind of stuff. And he says he begins to speak, begins to talk. He, he reports this, by the way, to the Jerusalem council because they're all shook up because they didn't follow the plan. First, they're Gentiles and second. So, so Peter begins to preach and it says, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them fell upon them. And then Peter says, huh, we could see that the Holy Spirit had been given to them just as us in Jerusalem. So who should hinder them from being baptized? Backwards now. Backwards. It was repent, believe, be baptized, and then you receive the Holy Spirit. In this case, it's receive the Holy Spirit, then get baptized. Try that one on. That'll blow your formula completely out of the water. Here's why. I think. I got it here somewhere. It's later. <laughs> let me say this, though. Bad formula here. Let me, let me tell you why. Because we're dealing with a person, not an influence. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We're dealing with a person, not a feeling. Not, a, not an impulse. We're dealing with a person. We're dealing with a person. Not an it. None of the, none of the, none of the, none of the pronouns in the New Testament referring to the Holy Spirit refer to it. They refer to he. Now, I, I don't think that's gender in terms of necessarily gender. God is a spirit. But it refers to the notion of not being a neuter noun, but a masculine noun, meaning person. We're dealing with a person here which is very unusual because in Greek, normally the noun pneuma, which is, is, is a neuter, would have a neuter noun except all the writers in the New Testament when it's a neuter, I know this is not making much sense, neuter, neuter, for some of you, well, some of you are worried about, neuter noun, masculine pronoun, highly irregular in Greek, on purpose, so you don't get the wrong idea. God is a spirit. There is no gender with spirit, if you will. But an understanding that we're not talking about an affluence or, or, or just an influence or a feeling or a mood or a sense. We're talking about a person. It's interesting about this person. I'll just share to you. I, I, um, yeah, we're not getting to be. Our failure to discuss this, that this person... I think means that we have hard time relating to him because we think it's a feeling. People say to me, hey, don't you just feel the spirit? I go, I don't know. I feel all kinds of things, man. You don't want to know what I... I don't know. I don't know. I, what does the spirit feel like? I, I don't know. It's interesting that the word feel doesn't even show up in the New Testament, by the way, if you just want a little information there. It doesn't even show up. 
So, you know, I don't know. But I think we don't, we've associated with something happening. Feel, I, I, I think there is a, some sense at times when we sense that God is present. I remember when I was in seminary, Dr. Robert Trina, who uh, was just an incredible Bible teacher. Uh, the, the, the privilege of my life was to study under him. They use all of his stuff at Dallas Theological Seminary, all of his textbooks. And I remember Trina one day, um, very reserved guy. I mean, typical ac- academic uh, you know, couldn't be in a room with more than three people to talk to one person at a time. I mean, just kind of socially backward. Those are, and, and I remember going to him one time and talking about something, and you know, just very, just not real socially with it. He wasn't invited to a lot of parties. <laughs> but I remember Dr. Trainer one day, uh, his wife had died. He didn't say a word. I mean, we knew she died. <laughs> But didn't say a word. And the next day, showed up to class, taught, didn't say a word. And uh, about probably two, two and a half months later in the semester, we're working through Philippians where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And he said, You know, sort of reminds me when Jane died. And uh, we, we just kind of went, because Bob was, our doctor trainer was very reserved. And we just, uh oh, what's fixing that in here? He said, you know, it's, it's like when Jane died. He said, we knew it would be coming and we knew it would happen. And, and uh, he said, um, when she died, I was at her bedside. He said, I went and embraced her and said to her, I love you. And then he said, I went to the end of her bed and stood. And then something happened to Trina. He said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he just went through the 103rd Psalm. And we sat there. And it was like we weren't there. And it wasn't, he wasn't trying to do something. This wasn't, this just wasn't Dr. Trina. He just said this relates to this text of rejoicing. He finished. Nobody moved. He starts filling his briefcase up. Back then we had overhead projectors and all these acetate. Things. Remember those? He had, a, he had an overhead for everything. Putting his briefcase. Nobody moved. He walked out of the room and nobody moved. I I don't remember how long we stayed. But if somebody would have walked by that seminary classroom, they would have looked at a bunch of yard bird seminary students sitting there looking at a board where there's nobody up there, not moving. I don't know what I felt. I just knew a presence. That happened several times in my seminary career. I, I, you know, people used to like, oh, you're going to cemetery. I said, man, I don't know where you know, but I'm telling you, my seminary wasn't like that. I can remember lots of occasions, there was a little chapel off to the side of where our classrooms were. And there were times when I'd get out of class and I would just go and weep and say, why did you give me this opportunity? Why did you allow this in my life? He's a person. He's a person. 
I don't know what it feels like. There have been times when it's been incredibly uh, joyful. There have been other times when I felt what Rudolf Otto, the great German theologian, said it was called the Mysterium Tremendum. There was a mystery that I was both attracted to and repelled from. It's weird. It's a mystery. I'm attracted and repelled at the same time. Because he's a presence. He's a person. Now, I wrote in my notes here, I haven't really thought about this much until just recently. Part of, the, part of the problem with, I think, our understanding of the Spirit, his operation of work, I'm gonna, this is my word, nobody, you know, he's shy. He's shy. Now, now, I take that. I'll give you three passages here real quick. By the way, this is really fun to me because when we finish this, it is my judgment also, we're going to go back to conversations with Jesus because John 14, 15, 16, and 17 is the most dense teaching about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. There's more teaching about the Holy Spirit in 14, 15, and we're, we're still in 14. I remember. Maybe you don't. <laughs> Y'all remember the book of John that we studied for what, 72 weeks so far? We're going to go right back in there. Think how shy he is. Look, open your Bibles. You've got to see this. Go to John 14. Go to your table of contents. Find the book of John. This is too important. <clears throat> in John 14... 26, start 25. He says, these things, Jesus saying, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, that, the Greek word there is uh, parakletos. It's an advocate, helper, uh, all kinds of trend. But the helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referred to back in 16. When the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. See, the Holy Spirit reminds you about Jesus, not himself. What's he going to do? He's going to take the words that Jesus said and remind you. He's shy. He didn't talk about himself. He didn't refer to it. Look over at 15. I'm sorry. Go over here to a 16. Chapter 16. <clears throat> Verse 15, all the things that the Father are mine, therefore I said to you, He, the Holy Spirit, takes of mine and discloses it to you. He's shy. He takes what Jesus said and what Jesus has and He discloses it to us. Here's something else. Just back up to 1614. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and disclose it to you. He doesn't glorify himself. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He glorifies Jesus. I've told my students this. My, and it's just me. But my spiritual radar kicks in. And I get nervous. Whenever people begin to make much of something or someone or something else than Jesus. 
Because I know the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Him. Not us, not me, not you, not our experience, not some miracle worker, not some, not, not some big wheel in the Christian church. His work is to glorify Jesus. He's shy about Himself. This is my own opinion. I have to agree with it. When I've heard people say, and, and I understand it, it could be related to Trinitarian theology. I, I get that. But they talk about let's just worship the Holy Spirit. I still see that. I see the Holy Spirit working in people to bring glory to God, glory to Jesus, and to make much of Him. Look at back at 1613. I tell you, this is we're going to come back. This is dense. 1613 to 15. But he who the spirit of truth that comes, he will guide you unto truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. Yeah, I, I think I want to say this. No, no. He will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will d- d- disclose to you what is to come. He's a person. And he's shy. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He is about drawing attention to Jesus. And so this sometimes causes all kinds of weird things for us because we don't see him making much of himself. He's making much of Jesus. That's his ministry and work. He'll remind us. He doesn't speak on his own. The, the Spirit is constantly making much of Jesus. Now, I'm going to hurry here, sort of. <laughs> That's a lot of material there in that little spot, isn't it? That's what happens when I start talking. The Holy Spirit is the promise. Remember I told you, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Joel 2. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Joel 2. It's a promise. But don't get into some formula. The second thing... He's a person. We said that. I want to. I want to show you that. You can say that if you want to, Cliff, and the church fathers, and you can study a patristic or a church fathers. But he's a person because of the personal pronouns that are always used. I told you I was getting ahead of myself. I'll get there in a minute. The use of personal pronouns. But second of all, I want to show you there are some the characteristics of human personality. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna work you through this. There are three elements here I see in the New Testament that that relate to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a feeling, not just an influence. Number one, he has a mind. Look at Romans 8.27. Romans 8.27. Start at 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. That should get an amen right there, right? Anybody with me? Don't know how to pray as ought. I'm there. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The mind of the Spirit. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here, here mind is attributed to the Spirit. Not just a, a, a ghost or a, you know, a feeling or like a cloud. But he has a mind, if you will. That he, no. uh, second of all, uh, I'm going to hurry here. Look at Acts 13. 13.2. A person, he also has a will. 
In Acts, uh, now there were in Antioch, verse 1 of chapter, at the church there were prophets, uh, uh, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and my name, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord, that, that's inter- that, that would be interesting to talk about, but we're not today. <laughs> ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. Wouldn't you like to have been there to heard that? <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us how that happened. It simply says the Holy Spirit said, I want this done. That is the feature of will. So mind, will, the last feature generally associated with human personality is emotion. Look over here in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 29 when it said, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so to give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Greek word grieve here means to cause sorrow. Doesn't mean to make mad. Doesn't mean make upset. It means to grieve. I tell you what's interesting, the context here. Grieving the Spirit seems to be directly associated with how we talk to each other. Just look there, verse 29. What grieves the Spirit is how we talk to each other. You know, I I had to the other day. We were in a hurry because Becky had moved some stuff around the house that I can't find. That's what happens. Wives do that, you know. I hang. I have three sets of clothes on the bedpost of my. I don't hang anything on a hanger. I just hang it around. You know. <clears throat> so she moved something. I'm sure. At least that's what I'm sticking with on this one. And I was in a hurry. I had to get out. I had to go to work. I was in a hurry. And I said to Becky, Becky, where'd you put it? That's kind of my default setting. You know, because <laughs> I know where I put stuff where I last used it. I know where it is. That's where I took it off right there. So it's a very simple system. Um, anyway, I'm in a hurry. I got to get to work. I got to get on the road. And, and, and she'd, I'd said something to her and I said, hey, where did you put it? And then I found out I had changed it. <laughs> Only happened once. I was walking in the garage to get to the car. And the spirit, who's a person, who has a mind and a will, and emotion said to me, You go clean that up with what you just said, how you said that to your wife right now. I don't care if you do get caught in traffic today. He didn't say that. (laughs) That was the inference. It was the inference. He said, you're not to talk to her like that. Even if you're in a hurry, even, you know, because I, I, you know, I used to have a professor. They they kid me at Dr. Wong. His favorite, devil. He was Chinese. And uh, there are times when I bark out lectures. I mean, kids are like, you know, so I can get that way. I get intense. I swear to God, just said to me, no, no, no. And I mean, he, did, he didn't bring this verse to my mind until later. We grieve the spirit the way we talk to each other. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But only that which is good for, that word, I mean, building up, building up. 
speak to one another. Go look at it in Ephesians 5 where he says, And do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in songs and spiritual songs and spiritual hymns, making melody. It's, again, the speaking function. Go look, at, go look at Ephesians 5 later. There's a direct correlation between living in the Spirit and the way we talk. I'm not just talking about cuss words. I'm, not just, I'm just talking about the way we talk to each other. So, all that being true, there is some cooperation, I think, that we need. This is all good stuff. Great. Hallelujah. It's all theoretical. I think we need to embrace our emptiness. I talked about this last week, and I'm just going to run by, but it's just still in my notes here. We need to embrace our emptiness in the life with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I said to you last week, the reason we're not filled is because we're already full of us. We're already full of our intellect. We're already full of our plans. We're already full of our finances. We're already full of our medical help, our medical care. Who in the world needs God? Come on. We live with a sense of capacity. We live with a sense of fullness. And here it says in Ephesians 5, be being filled. That's a constant. It's a, I told you that. It's a dirty present. It doesn't mean one time. It means constantly living in the filling and flow. This cooperation has to do with being empty, not trusting our own strength, not believing it. And I'm going to tell you, I thought this the other day in chapel. Listen, you and I are one phone call away from recognizing our emptiness. One phone, a doctor calls. You're one phone call. You know what? You and I are one downturn from realizing we need Jesus lots more than we thought we did. And we're in the middle of one, right? We're, we're, we're one trip away from finding out this, this, this illusion that we have, that we think we're in control, is just bizarre. I said this before. I say, you know, if you woke up today and all you did like me is, have, well, I, I did more than eat donuts. I had donuts and I studied a little bit. But if your day's pretty easy and you come to Sunday school and you're going to go to lunch and, and all, your sense of God needing God's pretty low. But if your doctor had called you on Friday and said, we have a serious medical matter. You better talk to your family. We got to see you Monday morning. Your capacity for God to be in your life is immeasurably increased. Why? You face your own emptiness. Our problem is, we do think we're adequate. Now, I told you this a hundred times before, but I'm going to say it again. And it's on your outline somewhere. Here we go. It's your inadequacy that creates the capacity for God to work in your life. You just think about your life today, about how adequate you feel, how much you don't need God. You don't need Him. But if you've had some bad news or you've lost a job or you've had a family thing fall apart or you've had things come unglued, all of a sudden, you've got lots of capacity now. The greatest problem in life, I think, is that we have had and continue to be able to live our lives fundamentally without God. We don't need Him. We just don't need him. Let's be honest about it. We don't need him. Embrace your emptiness. 
embrace the fact that life must be found in Jesus. I, I'm going to give you a new definition for sin. Isn't that, isn't that enlightening? Happy. Let, let, me, let me tell you what sin is. I, I, uh, I read a guy named Greg Boyd. I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with everything I say. Sometimes I'll go home and change it. I think, yeah, that was stupid. Really, yeah, I've, I'm not that. But Greg Boyd made this observation when he said, we've been distracted from the teaching of the Bible about our fundamental need. As if the solution for us was just that God wanted us to be good. We fundamentally misunderstood it. But the real problem is that we are masters at finding life in something else other than Jesus. That's what sin is. Finding life somewhere else. That's what Adam and Eve did. Hey, this tree... If you'll take it, you'll be like God. You'll have life. Oh, you'll be like God. Listen, sin is when I decide something else is more important and gives me life. You ever get that temptation to say, you know what? If I just had more money, if I just had more things, if I had better health, all of this then begins to become a matter of, that's where I'm finding my life. Uh, Beth Thomas sent me a great thing the other day, and I really appreciate it, uh, about uh, instead of when we pray, instead of saying to God, make it better, say, make it count. Make it count. Don't just make things better. Make it count. I, I'm not going to find life in my job or in my money, or in my house, or in my retirement, or any of those. I'm not going to find life there. I'm going to find it in Jesus and living my life with him. So I think Greg's, Greg Boyd's right. We, we, we think that God just wants us to be good and not. No, he wants us to find life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. I've said this before, you know, you know, it's because we think that Jesus came to make bad people good. No, Jesus came to make dead people alive. It's ridiculous. I know some very moral people who aren't Christians. I know some very moral people that are in other religions. I bet you do too. The mistake we're making, we think, well, you know, God just wants me to be good. Well, how's that going for you? Some of you not so well. <laughs> it's a fundamental mistake. 2016, this idea is that our inadequate is that we're trying to find life somewhere else. We're trying to find life somewhere else. And the reason we're not filled, I wrote this, <laughs> is because we're actually rather full. Thank you. <laughs> I'm actually rather full. You know what? I, I've been a Christian for a long time. I know quite a bit. I've been a pretty good guy, too. You know, I, I haven't done anything crazy yet. Yet. <laughs> it's always a possibility. <clears throat> right? My life isn't found in my history, in my knowledge, in my understanding. Listen, every time you're tempted to sin, it's because the devil's saying, You'll find life over here. 
you'll find life over here. You just give in to that. You'll find life over here. Second, look to be led. Look to be led. In this passage here, I'll just read it to you in, 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 or quote in Galatians 5, 16, 25. Therefore, those who are led by the Spirit do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Those who are led by, or walk by the, those two words are there. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. And then Romans 8, 16 says, all those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God and daughters. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I thought about that. I thought, it doesn't say, those who pray the prayer at the altar are the sons of God. <laughs> those who made a decision, they're the sons of God. It's those who are led by the Spirit of God. Look to be led. It, it seems that sometimes it's too mysterious, but in, in one sense, what we need to be doing is look to be led. Like, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? Is there anything? And if you don't say anything, don't do anything. Just relax. But are you looking to be led? Now, here, here's an interesting thing. I told you I hear lots of voices, but you know, there, there are about 100 voices in this room right now. Do you know that? I know the medical team is leaving right now to... Uh... Let, me, let me show you something. I think I could do this. I planned this, not real great. People say all the time, you know, when we go to church, now, Lord, we just pray you'll speak. I think Chris sometimes like, Lord, speak to us. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. That assumes he isn't speaking any other time. You know God's speaking all the time, right? He's trying to talk to you, trying to talk to me. Sometimes he's trying to say, hey, way to go. Good job, proud of you. It doesn't mean you live some neurotic life that you think you've got to be directed, cheeseburger, hamburger, cheeseburger, hamburger. <laughs> I grew up with people like that, you know. Real gas, ethanol, real gas, ethanol. Ridiculous. Our problem is we're not looking to be led. There are hundreds. There are hundreds of voices in this room right now. This is a KLVI out of Beaumont, Texas. It's a radio station. You know how I could hear that? Got a receiver. You know what? You got a receiver. The problem is we got to listen. There are a hundred. I could take you to KLVI. I can take you to WLAP out of Lexington. I don't dare take you to this rock and roll station. I haven't listened to myself, but it looks bad. <laughs> this iHeart Radio, man, you better be careful. Right? All kinds of voices are in this room right now. Going through here, radio waves. Just got to have a receiver. What, what's your Listen. You were created in the image and likeness of God. You have the capacity to sense, to hear, to follow. I'm not saying it's always easy. A lot of time I go, okay, who is this? <laughs> is this me? Is this God? That's okay. Don't get uptight by asking that question. Oh, I should know. No, you don't. But you should be, and I should be looking to be led. It says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I all say sometimes when I'm in a meeting, 
under my breath, I'm going to say, Lord, do you want me to say something? Should I? Should I not? Should I respond to this situation? Sometimes I don't get anything. And you know what? I generally don't do anything then. I don't feel compelled. You know, if I don't know, you don't, you don't have to make this up. I, I remember saying to God one time, I was trying to make a big decision and I got mad because I was fasting and praying and he wasn't coming through. <laughs> and I said this to him, okay, I really did. Okay, now listen, I'm the servant. You're the king. It's your job to tell me. I'll do it, but it's your job to tell me. So do it. <laughs> I still didn't hear anything. <laughs> For about a month. <laughs> it's not your job to make him talk or to make him lead you. It's just your job to be looking to be led. And it could be simple stuff. Praying over your kids before they leave. Thinking about saying something kind to someone. Look to be led. I got to hurry. You give me about three more minutes. You have. You don't have to, but you could. Whoops. <clears throat> Okay, work out what God is working at. I want you to get this second phrase, though. I, this is foundational to Christian living. This is that great passage in Philippians 2, 12 to 14. He says, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling or reverence. We'll talk. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you. You can't work out what God don't work in. He's working in your life. But here, here's, listen. This is a great, Floyd McClung's a guy I went and heard some time ago. He said this, obedience to God is not an act of servitude. Obedience to God is an act of gratitude. You know, it's, it's not like, oh boy, I got to do this. It, obedience is this gratitude to say, I'm working this out because you're working it in. Go look at that. It's Philippians 2. It says, for, you know, therefore in my absence, I'll read it to you. Paul is right. So then, my beloved, just as always you've obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Not didn't say work at it. He says work it out. I'll tell you what that word means here in a second. Your salvation with fear and trembling or reverence, for it is God who is at work in you. Watch this. Both to will, to give you the desire, and to work, to give you the energy. Energeo to do his good pleasure. I read that every morning when I say, God, today, today, you're working in me the will and working of your will. Work it out. Now, the word work it out here. The best way I can explain this uh, in Oklahoma terms, <clears throat> I better be careful, <laughs> is this. We all understand football. Mostly, you know. <laughs> when a team practices during the week, used to be, I know, uh, when the 49ers, uh, San Francisco 49ers had Joe Gibbs as their coach, they always said there were 13 plays they were going to run first. Didn't matter what was happening, thir I think it was 13 or 14. They're going to run 13 plays regardless. They practiced them all week, got out there. They won a few Super Bowls doing that. This word here, work out, means like a team that practices, now go do it. That's all Paul is saying. What God is working in, now go do it. He doesn't say work at it. He doesn't say now get, it's, it's up to you. He's saying what God has been working in you, both the will, the desire, and the work to do it, now you go work it out. 
Or it's like an orchestra that practices and practices and practices. And then finally on that day, they work out their practice and their performance. That's all it means. But look at the order there. Paul's saying you work it out because God's working it in. This isn't some call to work in your own energy. This isn't some call for you just to be busy and get, get busy and stay at it. This is some call, if you will, of getting out what God is working in. So my obedience isn't servitude. It's gratitude. God, thank you that you're working in my life. He's working in your life. He's working in all of our lives. He's working in them to say, now, I want you to work this out tomorrow when you go to work, Cliff, or in your house or in, in your neighborhood. It's not you guys. It's, it's not us. He's working it in. He's working it in you. It may be unknown to you. It may not be obvious to you. It may not be, you know, some uh, huge thing. I told you this one is shy. He's working in you. Now, I tell you, I, it seems to me that one of the things we always have to overcome for a lot of us who've been religiously trained, mostly, is that could this be true for me? That God is actually working in me when I feel like so many things are so goofed up? Yes. Let me tell you what God is up to. Go read it, Romans 8, 29, later. For those whom he foreknew, we're not going to get into any argument over election here. God knows everybody. For those whom he foreknew, he did also determine that they would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's up to. He's trying to make you and me like Jesus. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined or determined that they would become conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is working in. He's saying, Cliff, I, I want to make you more like Jesus. Cliff, I, I want to I create in you the character and person of Jesus. You can go read that in Romans. It says, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he did also predestine. That they would become conformed to the image of his son. On the authority of God's word, I can say this. And I, I, I'm not trying to be arrogant here. But I know what God's plan is for everybody in here. I know what God's plan is. I don't know if it, you know, it could be. You're going to work at nine different jobs between, you know, whatever. Or, or, or you're going to have good health or bad health. Or, or you're going to have this or that and the other. But I know what he's working on to make you like Jesus. You know, he may not make it better, but he will make it count. He may not make it better, but he will make it count. Because what will count is that you're working out in your daily life the person of Jesus in all of your life. So embrace your emptiness. Look to be led. 
work out what he's working in. Now, here's the application. You can see it here. What if this week you committed to memorize or write down one of these imperatives? Just one. Write it down. Memorize it. Whatever you want to say. But to say this week, I'm going to embrace my emptiness. I'm going to realize I've been living under the illusion that I'm adequate. I'm one phone call away from learning that out in just every way possible. Or I'm going to look to be... You turn your, turn your phone on this week or listen to iHeartRadio for a minute and realize all those voices, God's trying to lead. Those voices are all there. There's a hundred voices in this room. Pick them up on the radio. Or work out what God's working on. This isn't try harder. This isn't, it's all up to you. He's working it in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't know exactly um, what you want done in terms of details. But I do know that you want us to live our lives empowered beyond ourselves. Beyond just some religious rigmarole or some churchianity that we've learned how to function. And yet we've also seen it. It isn't a life where we're all perfect. Peter and Paul and these guys are still got issues they're working on. They were working out what you were working in. So protect us from extreme and uh, protect us from settling. For the life that Jesus gave and died for to be made available to us each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And we expect that shy member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to make it real, to make much of Jesus, and to be with us this week, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.